Let's pray together before we dive into the Lord's word this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love to us that you have shown in Christ in coming and dying for our sins that we might be saved and counted as your children and loved by you. We praise you that by your light, we're able to see light. And we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand your word. And by the work of your spirit, that you would apply your word to our hearts, that you would reveal to us and convict us of our sins, but also show us in new ways the great beauty of our risen Savior, Jesus. Be with me as I attempt to preach your word this morning, that you would use me as your instrument, and through this sermon, you would be glorified above all else. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 22, all the way to Mark 9, 1. I will read it together. We'll read it. I'll read it. Uh, but I invite you to follow along in your own copy of Scripture on your phone. And I also invite you to keep your copy of Scripture out as we uh, go through the sermon together. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. <clears throat> and he took a blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling to the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is it profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to have this opportunity to share God's word with you uh, today. Uh, in the last few months, it's also been a great 
opportunity and joy to serve our children here at Liberty. And uh, once a month, I will teach the Sunday school lesson. Um, sometime earlier this year, during one of the lessons, uh, one of my glaring weaknesses came to light when we began our printout activity where the sheet had uh, 10 identical pictures, or seemingly identical pictures. And the instructions were, uh, find the one that doesn't match the rest. After a few moments, one of the students came up to me and said, I, I need help. So I look at the sheet and I looked and I said, why is this children's activity so difficult? <laughs> I realized that I couldn't find the unique picture either. And so there we sat a few moments just looking at this paper. And it was only until Charlie bailed me out where he said, oh, I found it. I said, oh, great. Can you tell us which one it is? Because I can't find it either. And he helped us all out. So he bailed me out. And you know, I guess it's just a, it's a skill that I lack, right? Uh, finding things that may be obscure to see. You know, Waldo, to this day, still eludes me and haunts my childhood. But uh, you know, I, I don't feel bad about it. Um, to a certain extent, uh, to varying degrees, I think we all need some sort of help when it comes to seeing things that may be obscured from our vision, some things that may not be clear to us immediately I think we all need some assistance. And even when it comes to understanding difficult things, we need someone to guide us and take us by the hand to show us the truth. If you're a teacher, a parent, or even an older, older sibling, you know the amount of energy that it takes uh, for you to walk through with your students, your younger sibling or your children, and teach them anything from how to be polite, or a math pro how to solve a, a difficult math problem. And I think this also holds true when it comes to knowing God and understanding how it is that we as believers are called to live. These are things that I believe that we really need help to understand, to answer difficult questions about our faith, to see the worth in following Jesus. And it's my hope that as we go through Mark chapter 8 and the first verse of chapter 9, that we're going to see that in order for us to live a life following after Jesus, a life that is pleasing to God, we first need the Lord to reveal to us a true knowledge of Jesus and show us the pattern of life that Jesus has set for us to follow. So my sermon this morning as we cover this uh, will touch on two points, knowing Christ and following Christ, knowing Christ and following Christ. So uh, now for this first point, knowing Christ, we jump into our text and uh, we can see that uh, it covers quite a bit, right? Almost three unique stories, but I think at a closer look, we actually see a deep continuity throughout Mark's writing here in chapter 8. We see in verse 22, uh, we're introduced that some people brought to him, that is Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. As we continue to read on in the text, we see that the process of healing this man is, is not what we would expect, right? From our time in Mark, what we would expect is some kind of instantaneous, immediate healing, right? That would 
be in line with Mark's writing style, right? Very short, terse sentences, getting to the point. Uh, we've already looked at how this word immediately is one of Mark's favorite words to use in his gospel. Immediately this happened, then immediately that happened. So when Jesus is healing someone, especially when he's touching someone, right? We would expect that they would be healed immediately. But here in Mark 8, it describes to us that healing this blind man takes part in stages, right? First, what happens? Jesus leads the blind man out of town. He spits in this man's eyes, lays his hands on him, and after this first set of steps, Jesus says, uh, you know, do, do you see anything? And to that, the blind man says, yes, but no, <laughs> right? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking about. I can see something, but not really, right? Trees aren't walking around like people. Even he knows that. And so uh, for us who, like myself, need contact lenses or glasses, we might have uh, some kind of idea of what this man is seeing, right? If, if you need glasses and you don't have them, uh, depending on how bad your vision is, right? You, you see things, they're a bit fuzzy, the lines are undefined. I can tell that maybe there's people out here if I wasn't wearing glasses, but I wouldn't be able to tell who is joining us today. So this is maybe something along the lines of what the man was seeing as uh, Jesus healed him. But the man's vision was not fully restored, so verse 25 tells us that Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, and his, and, and his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and at this point now, he can see everything clearly. After reading this, I don't know about you, but I asked, and maybe you asked too, you know, should we, should we be concerned here, right? What's going on here? In fact, this is the only miracle of Jesus that doesn't seem to work fully the first time around. So what's going on here? Did Mark throw this in there just to you know, humanize Jesus and saying, you know, yeah, he's God, but you know, sometimes it takes a second touch, you know? Uh, you know sometimes you know, he's prone to, to that. Is it that this man's faith was not strong enough? Was there something missing in Jesus' first touch. I don't think that we should take any of those conclusions from this passage. Instead, as we go through this passage, I believe that Jesus chose to heal this man intentionally in this way, in a gradual, slow way, in order to teach his disciples a lesson. He uses it as a teaching moment. We remember in the previous chapter, Mark 7, verses 31 to 37, that uh, Jesus heals a deaf man in a similar fashion, uh, in a process of steps. Right? He first takes the man aside, follows a number of steps, putting his finger in his ears, spitting, uh, touching the tongue, looking up to heaven, commanding the mouth, be opened, and the man is healed. <clears throat> Keeping in mind the context of chapter 7, I really believe that Mark here in chapter 8 is complementing this healing of the blind man with what we saw in chapter 7 of the healing of the deaf man. There's a pairing here. 
He's healing a man who is deaf. Now he's healing a man who is blind, both of which happen in stages, in steps. And in this way, what Jesus does physically, in physically healing the senses of the deaf man and the blind man, in doing so, he uses this physical reality to point to the truth that's happening in the spiritual realm, a spiritual reality. And the reality that Jesus is demonstrating in healing this is that he is the one who is delivering people from sin and darkness. Jesus is the one who reveals true knowledge of who he is. Through these miracles, Jesus demonstrates that he is the promised Messiah, the promised king that would restore God's people the one that was promised in Isaiah 29 where the prophet looks forward to the day where God's people would fully be restored. And he writes that in that day, the deaf shall hear. Out of the gloom and darkness of the eyes, the blind shall see. Jesus is the promised one who would open the eyes and ears for God's people. But what does that mean for us that Jesus is the one who opens eyes and ears to spiritual realities, to the spiritual truth of things. Right? Well, what, is, what does it mean to be spiritually blind? And I believe in one sense, this speaks to the blindness of those who live apart from God, those who have not confessed Jesus as Lord, who are, do not belong to God as his children those who live in darkness and are unable to understand the reality and the true depth of the sin that they live in. Scripture is filled with examples like this. John 3, the apostle, describes that there are those who love and live in the darkness, whose actions are evil and refuse to come into the light. Proverbs 2 also shows us and speaks of being delivered from the way of evil, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the paths of darkness. Right, Just a few examples of many that we're able to find throughout Scripture. And so what we find here in this passage is that for anyone to have spiritual vision restored, to have this darkness removed from their eyes, this mark of sin removed from them, it is God himself that must do this. For anyone to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us, God must first open their eyes. For us this morning, the case is the same. For anyone here that calls on the name of Jesus and belongs to him because even before confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord or even before that was even a thought in your mind, the spirit of God was at work in us, changing us, allowing us to be receptive to the gospel and even prompting us and giving us the ability to accept Christ as Lord from beginning to end It's God's work that opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind and deaf. It's not as though through our own human might or intellect 
or our own strength that we're able to reason our way to God and saying, wow, yes, okay, all of this now makes sense that Jesus is Lord. No, it is God himself who must come and work in our hearts. Mark chapter 8 not only tells us who it is that opens the eyes and ears of the spiritually blind, but it also shows for us uh, the manner that this takes place. Slowly, gradually. And in this way, I think this slow manner, as opposed to an immediate way, is intentional. Jesus did this on purpose to give a visual representation for his disciples of how the Lord oftentimes removes this veil of darkness from our eyes in order that we might see. For us this morning, I think this gives us great encouragement as we pray for those around us to know and love Jesus as we do. As we pray for, whether it be a family member or a close friend, a relative, a coworker, or even those in our neighborhood. The passage prompts us to continue to pray and bring these people to God. Pray that the Spirit would work in their lives, that their hearts might be receptive to the gospel. We see here that because it is God's work beginning from end, no one is too far gone. No one is too blind that God is unable to open their eyes to who Jesus is and the beauty of the gospel. Our text shows us uh, people bringing this blind man and begging Jesus to touch him. And so here we see uh, almost uh, intercession that prompts us and shows us that we ought to bring people to Jesus in prayer every day. Every time we pray, we should really be thinking about people in our communities to bring them to Jesus and and beseech Jesus and beg them to give them that healing touch that they would know and see Jesus clearly for who he is as the king. This passage also speaks to uh, believers as much as those, as much as it speaks to non-believers today. And I think this is illustrated wonderfully as we continue on in our text Uh, as is in the case of the disciples. If we take a quick step back, um, the the, the verses immediately preceding verse 22, uh, we see the story of Jesus responding to the disciples' inability to understand spiritual realities of what he's doing, his parables and all his miracles. Look what he says in verse 17, if you have your Bibles. Do you not yet perceive or understand Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Here are Jesus' disciples who have eyes and ears, physical eyes and ears, but still are unable to see and hear. But notice what follows after our story of the blind man. As Jesus and the disciples are continuing on their way to Jerusalem, he asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And here, uh, he's not taking some kind of a popularity poll. Right? He's not saying, you know, do they like me more than you guys? Do they like me more than you know, the other prophets? But he's asking a question of categories. What category do the people put me in? The answer, <clears throat> John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and the others, 
one of the prophets. These answers from the people, they're close, but they're putting Jesus in a wrong category. What these answers are saying is that Jesus is in the same line as John the Baptist, as the prophets, as, as, as Elijah, as all these other significant figures, but they fail to see who Jesus is in that significant role that he accomplishes as the king, as the one who comes to heal people. Following the question, he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And he answers correctly, you are the Christ. Peter here recognizes that Jesus is the king that Israel had been waiting for, the king that would establish peace and bring justice for God's people. Peter rightly identifies that Jesus is not in the same category as John the Baptist or Elijah, but instead is in a category all to himself in this unique role as our Savior. In a parallel narrative that we find in Matthew, we see actually how is it that Peter comes to this great knowledge. And in Matthew 16, we see, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. After Peter's confession, Jesus then proceeds to teach his disciples, give them a you know, mini-sermon drawing from Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53 to say that he must suffer. He's going to be rejected by his own people. He's going to be killed and three days later be raised from the dead. Peter follows up with his great confession by taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. This word rebuke is the same word uh, that Jesus uses or that is ascribed to Jesus when he is speaking to demons, rebuking demons. And so we can understand the weight of what Peter is doing to Jesus here. But we can understand maybe where Peter is coming from. Because in Peter's mind, suffering and rejection had no place with a king had no place with this promised king that would come and make all things new again. Peter expresses his desire for a crown without a cross. And while Jesus' response of get behind me Satan may seem a little extreme, we know that in Luke 4 it tells us that Satan himself was the one who tempted Jesus first with glory without Suffering, And so in response, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? You are setting your minds not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Talking about spiritual vision here. And so even though Peter has made clear in his great confession that he does see Jesus, he sees him clearly. He said, you are the Christ, but the way that he sees Jesus is like a tree walking, distorted. He can see Jesus, but not really. He knows that Jesus is the king, but doesn't understand that. How could this king suffer? How could this king be rejected by his own people and even die? Peter was witness to all of Jesus' miracles, but he could not comprehend its true meaning. And even... Verse 32, we look, it says that what? Jesus explains all of this clearly, right? It doesn't get much more clear than that. He explains it plainly. No parables, 
No hidden meanings, right? No, no, no deep things we need to think about. It's very clear. Son of man, what does he got to do? He must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, killed, and after thir- three days, ri- raise, be raised again. It's very clear, right? Clear and simple. But what we'll find later in Mark 14 is that even though all of this is happening to Jesus, we see a defeated Peter who rejects Jesus and is in disbelief that any of this could have happened to his king. It's only until the Holy Spirit is given in Acts chapter 2 when they're finally able to see Jesus clearly, that second touch that Jesus gives to them. Much like the disciples, for those of us here this morning that have confessed that, yes, Jesus is Lord, our eyes have been opened. The veil of darkness has been drawn back and we are given spiritual vision to see correctly and yet we have to be very honest that we exist in a time where we await Jesus' return. The time when he will fully restore all things and until that time comes, we struggle with spiritual nearsightedness. I understand that when I say that we struggle with spiritual nearsightedness, in no way does that take away from our salvation in the way that God has seen us. Because when we were saved, we were saved. Nothing can take that away from us. We were justified, adopted into the family of God, and made holy. And yet, we recognize that in this life, We are growing in our holiness. It is a work in progress. We, as believers, are a work in progress to be perfected on that last day. And as we continue to struggle and experience this spiritual nearsightedness, this often affects the way we heed Jesus' call and how we're to follow him. And this brings me to my second and final point, following Christ. In our text this morning, we see Jesus as the one who reveals himself to us. But the text also shows us that Jesus also clearly explains what it means to follow him, what it means to live a life for God. After responding to Peter's rebuke, Jesus calls the crowd to himself and explains, this is the true cost of following me. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. You know, today we often use uh, that phrase, uh, take up your cross, you know, it's your cross to bear. You know, sometimes in matters that aren't very serious. But for Jesus' disciples, during that time, the cross would never be used in such a casual way. It was a symbol of utter shame and humiliation. It was a disgusting thing. People went as far as to avoid using it in casual conversation so as not to offend someone that they were with. But here, Jesus explains that this is the cost to follow me. Take up a cross and follow me. Church history tells us that all of Jesus' disciples died the death of martyrs. Some were crucified like Jesus. Some were stoned, beheaded. While the cost of discipleship in our immediate context may not require us to lose our life 
for following Jesus, taking up a cross requires us to surrender our entire selves to him. Every aspect of our thinking, our relationships, our time, our energy, all of that are surrendered to Jesus as our king. Why on earth would anyone want to follow this Jesus who requires so much of us? We do so because in him, we find true light. Verse 35 tells us that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Despite this high cost of following Jesus, we as a church, we delight to confess alongside Peter that Jesus is Christ. We love to gather on Sundays to bring our praise and worship to him. We love to serve him. And why is this the case? Because in him, we find our true light. Only Jesus, only in Jesus can we find a true life and a true sense of identity, a true soul. There is nothing, nothing in this creation that can offer what Jesus can give. What does it profit a man to gain the entire world only to lose his own soul? In the gospel, Jesus gives us true life to be lived. For us as a church, what does it mean to take up a cross and follow Jesus? What does it mean that we are surrendering every aspect of our beings to him? For the youth in this room, it might mean taking a firm stance for what we believe is right or wrong with your friends or at school. In the workplace, taking up a cross may mean dying to ourselves, working with integrity in our conversations, in our work habits, how we talk about our bosses, and how we treat our direct reports. And even as we live in the city of Philadelphia, coming off of Pride Month, following Jesus and taking up a cross may mean answering hard questions in love and having these conversations with our friends who ask us these hard questions as opposed to avoiding them and shying away from it. But as we strive to follow after Jesus in this way, we are in desperate need of God to continue to give us that spiritual vision to show us the beauty and the worth of Christ, that the true life that we find in him so that we are able to die to our pride every single day. Although God has shown to us who Jesus is clearly, and the way to follow Jesus, right here in Mark, very clear. Also throughout scripture, very clear. How often do we find ourselves failing to follow Jesus and know him as our king? At times, the cost of following Jesus doesn't seem worth it, right? We experience this spiritual nearsightedness where things just don't seem to make sense. We can't seem to connect all the pieces together. In response to difficulty or hardship, we go to the Lord in prayer asking, what's going on here? I just don't get it. I can't see what you're doing here. And oftentimes I pray that myself. Or I pray, I said, Lord Jesus, I know who you are. I know what you have done for me. That is clear. There is no life apart from you. And yet, I'm struggling to see. I'm having trouble. My vision is fuzzy. 
and blurry. We have so many questions when we come to Scripture and we struggle to apply these deep truths to our day-to-day life and apply them to this broken world we live in. We believe, but we need help in our unbelief. Our vision is skewed. But as we come to here, as we come and gather for worship this morning, we rejoice and we give thanks that our salvation is not dependent on our best efforts to know who Jesus is, or your best efforts to follow the call to take up the cross because we are saved by none other than Jesus who carried his own cross, who suffered who was rejected by his own people and was crucified. We are saved by Jesus who not only shows himself to us and the cost of discipleship to us, but according to Philippians 2, denied himself in order that we might be saved. He did not count his own glory as something to be grasped in order that we might be counted as sons and daughters alongside with him. Why did he do this? He did this all to pay for our sins. He took up a cross and he suffered, a suffering that we could never bear. And although we struggle to live a life to follow Jesus, despite this clear knowledge that he has given to us, we thank God that Jesus never stands at a distance from us, urging us to try harder, know better and do better, but he guides us as we walk in faith, as our vision fails, resting in his work, allowing him to lead us by the hand, guiding us step by step until that last day when we'll see him again, face to face, beholding the full glory of our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you reveal truth to us that without you, we are helpless. And so we thank you that you are able to not only show us who you are, the beauty of Jesus and the gospel, but also the way in which we are called to follow and chase after you. But as we do so, Lord, we acknowledge that we are weak, that we fail in our efforts to do so. And so I pray that you would encourage us this morning, reminding us that Jesus has taken up his cross and he has suffered because we could not, and now leads us on the way home, step by step, stage by stage, until we see you on that last day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.